This interview is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. In Practice is an independent publisher and all opinions expressed by guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of In Practice. Chris, can we step back to the early 2000s when you started Glenavy and what opportunity did you see in the market? Then. Well, so Glenavy uh, was was at its inception a, a technology and media venture capital investing platform. So I had come out of Time Warner, where I first served as its global general counsel, but later I moved into an, a pure business role in one of its largest operating businesses in Time Warner Cable. And Time Warner Cable is the, the sort of the umbrella provider of broadband services, advanced technology, and so on. And that, of course, you know, as you say, let's go all the way back to the 2000s. That was the era of early adoption and very great market excitement around concepts like broadband and, and voice over IP and, and all the things today that we take very much for granted. So what I did in Glen Avey with private capital is we built a series of, of technology-focused investments, uh, mostly in Europe and Asia. And so it was a classic, it was a classic tech venture capital vehicle. And that, you know, that we did that for a while. We added some public capital to it over time. And Burford, you know, the idea of litigation finance was really a hobby that ran alongside my day job. But there were some notable parallels. The way that Burford operates, the way that litigation finance works, does certainly have a number of venture capital or private equity-like characteristics. So can we compare them then? So given your experience running you know, Churchill and, and the kind of VC-like business, how would you compare venture capital as an asset class to litigation finance? I think the methodology has a lot in common. You know, in, in all of those disciplines, what you're doing is you're taking you know, a, a fairly large number of potential investments, potential inputs, you're doing a deep dive diligence on them, ultimately to get to a diversified portfolio of a much smaller pool of investments. And that's exactly what we do at Burford. You know, Burford looks at between 1,000 and 1,500 investment opportunities every year. And out of that, we tend to close somewhere in the 4 to 8% range of those opportunities. And so a lot of what we're doing, you know, and a lot of what a technology venture capital firm is doing is spending quite a lot of time and energy looking for, you know, particularly desirable, particularly compelling, high conviction opportunities. And so that, that's, that's certainly a similarity in process. You know, obviously what we're doing substantively is different, but methodologically there are a lot of similarities. And then how would you compare the cash flow profile? So from the time a dollar goes in to a, a dollar's returned? Well, that is where you get into some very interesting differences that make litigation finance particularly attractive. And, you know, and candidly, it's why I ultimately elected to pivot from technology VC into this industry. You know, I, I enjoyed technology VC. It was successful for me. But there are a couple of structural characteristics that favor investing in this litigation asset class. So to begin with, you don't have an exit, a, a realistic exit in technology investing. You have to get to an event. 
Whereas in, in litigation, you don't need to create an exit for yourself. You don't need to sell a business or take it public. The process, the litigation or adjudicative process provides an automatic exit for us in every investment that we make. We don't need to literally do anything at all. We can be a buy and hold investor and simply ride out the investment until it comes to a, a natural end. And that end is either a, a, a settlement of resolution agreed by the parties, and that's a majority of the outcomes, or it's a court or arbitration adjudication, which happens in a minority of cases. But in any event, you're getting to the end without having to do anything. And that end also isn't influenced by the market or the broader economy. You know, you don't have the cyclical dynamic that you have in venture capital and private equity of valuations and when you're going to be able to sell at a desirable level. Here, the system just generates those those outcomes for you. And the other thing about the litigation system is that while it's not speedy, it's also not slow. You know, you're not seeing on average the kind of, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine-year hold periods that you see in, in other kinds of business investing. You know, our, our weighted average, our mean time to resolution is between two and three years and less than that in settlements. And I think the final thing that is, you know, that is sort of very advantageous for litigation finance investing is the underlying dynamic of settlement. So litigation settles much more often than it goes to adjudication. That's not, a, that's not something that's unique to Burford's portfolio. That's something that is prevalent across the litigation landscape. And the reason that it happens, of course, is that while parties may use the litigation process to try to resolve disputes, at the end of the day, many parties don't like the risk profile of having their dispute adjudicated by a third party. And so the reason that settlements are so significant compared to, again, venture capital is they, they remove the risk from the equation. So we have more than half of our investments right now around 61% resolving by settlement that removes all the risk we're getting paid in those in those investments and that's not something that 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 layer that foundational layer is not something that you have in a in a pure equity investment in in a vc or private equity world and obviously when they settle as well it's you know as from your reports it's 1.6 years which is far shorter than the you know seven to ten year fund life of a vc or private equity fund well, well, exactly. And, you know, the reason, of course, that's happening is because the catalyst for settlement is often the seeing the progression of the case and coming closer to a trial or an adjudication result. And so those are the moments where you say, generally as a defendant, gee, the, the risk profile here, I wasn't, success, I wasn't successful along the way in getting the case knocked out or in doing some tactical things to, to limit its value. So now I'm exposed to meaningful risk. And the way to deal with that meaningful risk is to negotiate a resolution as opposed to throwing yourself in the hands of a judge or a, or a jury. And so the timing means that you're realistically going to settle most cases before you're, before you're walking into the courtroom for trial. And how do you compare the return profile then? And just looking at your, you know, Burford's results, you know, relative to VC, I think it's common knowledge that VCs want to lose or have, you know, seven out of 10 zeros and, and the three that are positive, some are, you know, massive winners. Burford, you know, from your investment table, you clearly do not lose anywhere near as many of those 
in terms of zeros, how do you compare the return profile of VC or private equity versus litigation finance? So we get to desirable returns in a somewhat different way because of the structural dynamic that we just talked about. So, you know, you, you basically have three possible outcomes of any piece of litigation. You've got settlement, you've got adjudication winning, and you've got adjudication and losing. And those three things combine to, to generate the kind of desirable returns that we are showing. Because a majority of the matters are settling, those matters are generally producing mid-range returns. And so we don't have the same desire for as many losses as a VC does in order to, to enable you know, the theoretical eye-popping returns. We've got a somewhat different structure. We've got the middle-of-the-road cases that really fuel the business and provide basic returns. And then we have a real asymmetry between wins and losses. When we lose, we're losing the capital that we've invested for legal fees and so on. But when we win, we're winning a share of the ultimate damages. And nobody rational is going to spend $20 million in legal fees in an effort to win a $20 million judgment. And so when we, when we go to trial and win, we tend to have very strong performance. You know, that's when we'll be making, you know, five times our money and the corresponding losses when those cases go to trial and lose. And that only happens, you know, around 10% of the time, the losses are much smaller. And so we're combining a much less risky diversified portfolio than venture capital is to generate comparable unlevered returns. And what about relative to private equity, which is, I guess, somewhere in the middle? Yeah, and private equity, of course, you know, does rely on a significant amount of leverage to generate its returns. And so I think the comparison is a little less apt. We've elected not to engage with that kind of leverage simply because of the risk profile of the assets. But our returns are, you know, on, on, a, on an unleveraged one levered basis, our returns are significantly higher than private equity returns are. How much leverage do you think you could add to Burford? What's the, what's the maximum you think you could get to? You know, it's not it's not something that I really focus on. Um, you know, our approach to leverage has historically been quite conservative. You know, and there are a variety of reasons for that. Some of them have to do with the assets themselves. You know, the cash flow streams from these assets are inherently unpredictable on a period period basis. So you don't want to have so much leverage on the business that you start to worry about how you're going to satisfy your 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 debt obligations. You know, the other thing that's important to bear in mind about Burford is that Burford is a really a significantly employee-owned business. The management and employee population as a whole, you know, are either the largest or close to the largest shareholder in the business. And, and so we're conscious of the fact that, you know, the more leverage you pile on top of yourself as an equity holder, the more you're putting your own position at risk. And so I think we prefer a world where we are, you know, very confident in the equity value as opposed to trying to max out the debt. And just last question around the comparisons of the return profile of different asset classes and litigation finance. So I've heard some describe litigation finance as almost like a, a book of options where some can be, you know, some can be zero, some can be you know, positive or you know, home runs. Do you look at it in that way as well as like a, it's more like a book of options rather more like a linear kind of book of assets that, that grow? Is that how you, how do you, how would you 
I'm not. I'm not sure that I. I'm not sure that I find the distinction to be particularly useful in practice. You know, be, because of the nature of what we do. You know, at the end of the day, we're putting capital behind the performance of of an underlying case. And whether you call that case an asset, which it is technically as a legal matter, or whether you call it an option, simply a right to receive future payment based on the outcome of something else, you know, you get to you get to exactly the same point in in the outcome. And when you look at, at what those outcomes are, sort of back to the earlier discussion. You know, you you do have here a widely diversified portfolio, and Burford diversifies across geography, industry, type of litigation, and so on. And so, what you're looking for from that portfolio is, as you get outcomes, you're looking for cash to flow. You know, whether it's flowing because you characterize it as a as an option premium at that point, or or whether you characterize it as a return on your invested capital. It almost seems like this is a much more attractive asset class than than private equity or venture capital, given that it's, you know, shorter duration, typically three ways to, to exit that you know <laughs> that you're going to exit and, and, and higher IRRs. Well, I'm, I'm biased, of course, because I'm doing it, but I, you know, I, as I said earlier, made the conscious choice ultimately to do this full time instead of continuing on with it as a hobby and doing tech VC full time. So can we walk through then a, a, a typical process of funding a, a portfolio? Maybe firstly, case origination or, or you know, originating cases. How does Burford typically think about origination? Well, let's, let's start by making sure we understand that there are really two different things going on for corporate clients. The first of those focuses on the corporate P&L. And so, and this is really how litigation funding, and let's, let's call this litigation funding, got its start. Companies don't like the impact of litigation costs on their P&L. They hit their OPEX line. They drive down EBITDA. They don't get a market return for the wins. And so being able to offload the cost of litigating to somebody else is very desirable. It solves a P&L and it solves a budget problem for a corporate client. But what was historically happening with respect to the dynamic around just getting the legal fees paid is corporate clients would turn to their law firms and they would say to their law firms, you know, I'd like to hire you for this case, but I'm not going to pay you the way you'd like to be paid. So go figure it out. And that would put the law firm in the role of needing to solve the client's problem and the law firm had a very strong, you know, positive incentive to do that because it was the way for them to get hired and paid. And so that part of the market, which, which still flourishes and Burford remains a you know, major player in, that part of the market is more law firm driven than client driven because it's the law firm that has the client and is trying to, to land the financing. It's not exclusively that way. You'll certainly see clients coming to us directly, but a decent amount of, of the P&L side of the business, the fees and expenses funding side of the business does come through law firms. And so Burford, Burford originates business by having significant relationships with the major law firms. We've worked with more than 90% of the world's largest law firms. And in addition to those relationships, we do a whole variety of, of ongoing marketing and outreach. So we do traditional marketing. We do traditional business development. You know, we have a significant brand in the market that causes people to bring matters to us. So we've got a whole variety of ways that things come in the door and go through our investment process. 
The other side of the business, though, is really the corporate balance sheet. And this is where you move from litigation funding to litigation finance or to legal finance, as we today call what we do. And this now is a a company, a CFO, a general counsel saying, we have this piece of litigation, this significant piece of litigation, and that litigation has real future value. You know, we, we expect the case to win or settle. And when it does, a, a material amount of money is going to come due. But that doesn't do anything for the business at the moment. You don't, you don't put that on the, on the balance sheet as an asset. Investors don't pay any attention to it. And so it's effectively sitting there, this invisible thing, this invisible but quite valuable asset. And even when the case succeeds, investors won't get particularly excited by it. And so what companies are increasingly doing with us is they are coming to monetize the, the current value of that asset in advance. Now, that's a, that's a matter in which the law firm doesn't really have a role. The company wants the capital for its own operational purposes. It's going to take that capital and put it onto its, onto its books. And so we do most of those, most of those deals, we do those directly with companies. And, you know, that's through, again, traditional means, marketing, business development, outreach, and, and companies just coming directly to us given our position. Is that balance sheet side typically more attractive deals because that you're going direct to the corporate? No, we, we underwrite pretty much to the same levels regardless of the, the use of the capital. But they are attractive to us because they tend to be larger transactions. You know, the limitation of the traditional litigation funding business is that, you know, it only costs so much money to bring a case. You know, even a really big, even a really complicated case, you're going to struggle to spend over a certain level in, in legal fees. And so inherently, you, you only can provide a certain level of financing per deal. Whereas our, our average deal size has continued to increase pretty significantly over time as we do more and more balance sheet monetization activity. And I'd assume that it's quite difficult for smaller private funders to, to get access to those balance sheet direct deals. That's right. It's simply a question of size and scale and capability and sophistication. And so there are lots of, there are lots of firms out there that do a you know perfectly good job on fees and expenses funding and you know spend their days doing you know two three four million dollar deals but are just not not competitive you know will will do deals you know above 200 million dollars in size and and there are funders where that's you know one deal for us is several times their entire their entire capital is this balance sheet side is that where you think there's the biggest opportunity for burford or the unique opportunity given Buffett scale? Well, I think there's opportunity on both sides of the equation because what you see today is, you know, despite the fact that we've experienced, you know, a very desirable level of growth, you know, Buffett's portfolio has grown, you know, at more than a 50% CAGR for the last five years. Um, that was coming off a relatively small base. You know, so five or six years ago, we had a $500 million portfolio. Today, we've got a $4.5 billion one. Um, so that's, that's, objectively very nice growth for Burford, but it remains, you know, quite a small portion of the overall universe of, of legal spending and judgment value. Um, and so we, we remain in the relatively early innings of, you know, adoption of, of legal finance as a product by corporations, 
whether on the P&L fees and expenses side of things or on the balance sheet asset monetization side. So I see both of them as continuing opportunities. What could give a funder a advantage in winning cases on the funding side of things at the corporate P&L with the law firms? Well, I think what, what goes on here is what you see happen really in any kind of market, any kind of capital provision financial services market. You know, this is obviously a, a market, a competitive market with a number of players, just as you would expect and, and desire. I don't think that it's a, a, a healthy thing to have markets that are that are contained with just a few members. So, so what you have here is the same way that you'd see competition happening among private equity firms or investment banks or, or any other sophisticated financial services player. And, you know, what goes into that competition is a, a variety of things, scale, uh, reliability, reputation, brand, prestige, ease, ease of working, you know, all of those kinds of things. The other thing, though, that we have the benefit of is, you know, if you went back a decade when Burford was was quite a nascent business, you know, somebody else probably could have come along and built a, a, an identical Burford-like business right alongside us if they had had the, the necessary inputs to do that. You know, we were really the first to institutionalize um, this business and and to capitalize it well. But at that moment, you could have, you know, if Blackstone had come along and said, gee, I, I like this, let me try to do it too, that probably would have been just fine. What has happened now, though, is that we've had a decade of head start, and that has given us a number of very significant advantages. You know, we're the entrenched brand in the industry. We have the relationships that, that give us business, but we also have an extraordinary amount of proprietary data from being in this quite confidential business for quite a long time and having seen literally thousands and thousands of, of matters. So we have that data that we put to use in our investment process that is not publicly available, not replicable. And we have, you know, we've, we've built a team and a collection of repeatable processes around investing in this asset class, again, that are proprietary. And so somebody, you know, somebody with deep pockets who wanted to come today and enter would face a, a meaningful uh, disadvantage in terms of being able to catch up on those fundamental points. I mean, when looking at the advantages of scale in, in this business, is, is it really just coming down to the ability of Burford to do those larger deals? We, you know, we're obviously, with the brand of reputation they have, is it about getting access to those deals that are really going to move the needle, given your, like you said, manager four and a half billion portfolio today? Yeah, but it's not just about writing a check. And that's the common, you know, I think a common misnomer in some capital provision businesses. And, you know, let, let's compare this to investment banking. You know, why do you, why do you want Goldman or why do you want Morgan Stanley to do your IPO? Why why wouldn't you if you had the option, why wouldn't you be perfectly happy with a, you know, a bank that you've never heard of as long as you thought they could get you the money? Well, because there are a lot more things that go into executing an IPO and having the stock of a company trade successfully post IPO than just the day of the deal and the check that you're going to get for going public. And, and the same analogy can be made here. Burford's got 140 people. We invest all over the world in every kind of law. That means that we are the kind of partner 
that global law firms and global companies come to when they have their own needs around the world. You know, it's not as appealing to go to a small player that only does one thing that is more nascent, that has a less reliable pool of capital behind it. You know, those are all factors that go beyond just, you know, who's going to write the check. And just on that point, so like the OPEX, the 140 people, um, you know, $95 million a year in, in, in kind of labor cost or OPEX, how should we look at that relative to, you know, as the operating cost of running the, how does that scale? How should we look at that as a percentage of the, of the book that you're managing? I think you look at it in the same way that you look at private equity and venture capital. You know, there's there's a degree of operating leverage built into these kinds of businesses, whether it's Burford's or another capital provision business. And that operating leverage comes from things like being able to increase average ticket size, average deal size, and being able to engage in repeatable processes or being able to add on deals that are where we've already done the fundamental diligence around the first case. You know, you see, for example, us, us doing that fairly regularly. We'll, we'll go into an area where we like, you know, we'll, we'll do one case and we'll like it. Um, we'll become deep experts in it. And that is then lets us pretty easily add on other clients' cases in the same area um, where we're all already familiar. So there's, there is an element of operating leverage in business. And, and so it's not a one-to-one relationship. It's not as though I would need to double the, the labor pool to be able to double the size of the portfolio. And if you look at the historical trends, you've seen that our OPEX has risen much more slowly than our portfolio size. We haven't seen anything like a 50% CAGR increase in our, in our OPEX spending. That being said, operating leverage has a limit in, in capital provision businesses. And, you know, every deal that you do requires a level of diligence and, and you know, human capital investment to, to diligence and close that transaction. And so as we continue to grow, you know, we'll continue to grow the team commensurately with those needs. So there's a balance to be struck there. It's more of a, the way I look at it, it's more of an operating business than the likes of, I don't know, KKR's LBO fund, right? Where you've got 10 guys that are investing in companies. It seems like the, the, the DD that you guys have to do and, and the work that you have to do is a bit more different in nature that maybe is less operationally levered than the likes of the PFAS. Well, it's, it's, it's specialist, but I don't know that that's, uh, that that's any different than a KKR or a Blackstone. Those are obviously businesses that have grown their headcount and their OPEX very significantly as they have continued to grow as well. You know, an LBO team can only do a certain number of deals at one time. And if you want to do more deals, you've got to add more people. How important is it to own the asset recovery business internally? I think it's valuable as a, as a meaningful incremental part of what we do. You know, when you, when you think about what goes on in litigation, you first of all, and, and this is how we would go through the diligence process in any investment that we look at. You know, you start off looking at the underlying case, the underlying piece of litigation or arbitration, and you're asking yourself a very merits-based question. You know, what's going to happen with this case? Is it going to win? Is it going to lose? Is it going to settle? What, what, what's the prognosis? 
And obviously, we're trying to screen out there, you know, cases that we think are affirmatively, substantively bad. Then you go on to the case economics. You know, how much is this case worth? What's its settlement value? What's the realistic damages number that would be awarded in court if, if the court were to try the case? And so that's a heavily financial and, and economic area. And that's why we combine lawyers and finance people in this business. This is, this is not just a litigation lawyer business picking cases. So once you've concluded that you've got a case that you know has real value and you think is going to deliver that value, the question then becomes, you know, can you get paid? And that, you know, that adds in a number of other questions. There's a credit analysis to be done. You know, will the defendant be solvent by the time you get to the end of this process and try to collect? But also, does the defendant have assets located in a place that we can realistically obtain them? And that's really where the asset recovery business comes in. You know, some number of, you know, most most defendants pay judgments or settlements once they have reached, once they've been reached. You know, we have, you know, a very high percentage of people just wiring the money or sending a check. But there are some people who have entered into litigation because they are unhappy with the idea of paying money to the to the opponent. And even after they've lost in court, they remain unhappy. And so they take advantage of multi-jurisdictional strategies usually to try to make it more difficult to collect that money. And, and you see people, frankly, just go ahead and give up. You know, the research, uh, you know, we do quite a lot of, of third-party independent research and, you know, some research that we just released shows us that a majority of corporations have uncollected judgments out there, that they've, they've actually gone through the process, they've achieved success in the litigation process, but they don't have the cash. And they've, they've sort of given up on trying because it's hard work. So the asset recovery business does two things for us. It helps us make you know, sound investment decisions on the front end so that we maximize our ability to collect on judgments once we win them. And we have never had a, a significant judgment that we've not been able to collect. And the other thing that it does is it's its own line of business because there is a significant demand out there from corporate clients for assistance with, with collecting difficult judgments. Can we just walk through the, the, the case economic or the unit economics of a portfolio then? Yeah, and maybe starting with the actual cash flow and the difference between the commitment and deployment schedule. So let's say that we have, I don't know, $100 in year zero. What, is it, what does the capital flow typically look like? So it's going to come back again to the distinction we were drawing earlier between funding, the, the sort of fees and expenses side of the business, and monetization. So let, let's first of all take a $100 portfolio of funding. So what, what's going to happen there is we will come along, we'll say, all right, let's, let's to make the math easy, we've got 10 cases in this $100 portfolio, you know, each at, each at $10 of, of expected fees and expenses. So we'll, we'll write commitments, we'll enter into contractual commitments to pay, you know, up to that $10 per case, and we'll then walk down the road and go through the litigation process, and we will pay over time as the case costs are incurred. Um, and, and that will happen, you know, the, the cases will run for various lengths. Some of them will settle earlier and only use part of our capital and we'll get a return. Some of them will go all the way through trial and appeal and use all of our capital and will take longer, but generally get a higher return at that point. 
you know, and those are the statistics that you've seen, you know, in the in the aggregate. It takes between two and three years on a on a weighted average basis. And we generate, you know, IRRs in the high twenties, low thirties, and and returns on invested capital in the eighties and nineties. So that's sort of been our historical. That, that's how that portfolio tends to work. And as as with any of these portfolios, there will be some some tail elements to it. So it'll take some years to to extract all the value from that portfolio. The other side of the business, the the balance sheet business, the monetization of corporate claims. That is much more a you know single dollar investment business. So we are tending to invest all the capital that we're going to invest at the time of closing the transaction, because the corporate client's incentive to use our capital is to get that liquidity in their hands. So we're tending to make a single payment upfront, and then that case is just running along through its life cycle and and getting to resolution. And what's roughly the mix today between that balance sheet and fund inside in the portfolio? You know, it's it's hard to tell because we also do a number of hybrid deals where we do both. We fund the fees and expenses and also pay some capital towards, you know, towards the cost. But if you look at the if you look at the published split between law firm originated business and corporate originated business, right now it's pretty close to even. And you expect that to change much going forward? I expect as as you continue to see corporate monetizations grow, given the size of the deals, I expect us to continue to skew in that direction. And does that make it harder to manage the cash flow then? And the like? No, in some ways it makes it easier because you know with monetization deals, you're you're putting out whatever capital you're using at the time of closing. Whereas on fees and expenses deals, you know, you need to basically maintain a reserve of cash for those fees and expenses. Now, it's not as it's not as problematic as it might sound for two reasons. One, because the fees and expenses deals are smaller. And the second is because the cash outflows are fairly predictable. You know, so, for example, we will know the average time to trial in, you know, in, in basically every place that we're doing a case. And so. You know, if you come today with a New York case, you know, you're not going to get that case to trial until 2023 at the earliest. And so we know the stages of the litigation, the costs of those stages, and therefore we have a, a clear sense of what our outflow needs are going to be. But the, the balance sheet side may actually require more capital up front because you're going to... Correct. So would you expect more of a return over time or do you think that the IRRs are going to change much? Between the balance sheet funded. Now, as I said earlier, we we really we really underwrite. So we're obviously building a diversified portfolio, and so we price to risk. And there's a wide range of individual economic terms inside our portfolio. But the overall goal of what we're trying to achieve is is returns that are not affected by deal type or deal structure. What's the most challenging part about managing that cash flow between commitments? deployments, and then the return of capital? Well, I think the most challenging part of the entire business, not just from a capital management perspective, but also really from an investor management perspective, is the, you know, everybody likes the idea of an uncorrelated business. And, you know, I think we all found out, you know, in the financial crisis that lots of things that people said were uncorrelated turned out, in fact, to be quite correlated. Um, so that's why I think this business was able to secure the, the capital that it did shortly after the financial crisis, 
because I think people did realize that this was, in fact, one of those truly completely uncorrelated businesses. So that's a, an enormous investment plus. But what goes along with that plus is the thing that makes it uncorrelated is that the cash flows emerge entirely from judicial decision-making. And the timing of judicial decision-making, while it is predictable in the aggregate, you know, in the sense that I can tell you on average how long cases are going to take in New York, I can't tell you individually how long cases are going to take. And so if our case lands with a slow-moving judge or our case lands with a judge who has a, a terrorism trial, which is going to take priority to our civil case, you know, there are unpredictable elements here. And what that means is that you really cannot predict on an individual case basis with any reliability. You cannot predict the timing of your cash flows. And that, you know, that can be frustrating for investors because it means that we'll inherently have volatile cash flows in the business. We'll have busy periods where lots of things will happen and we'll have slow periods where very little will happen. You saw that just last year. You know, we had an enormously active first half of 2020 in terms of in terms of generating cash realizations to the business. And we had quite a sleepy second half of, of 2020 for no particular reason. That's the nature of the business. How do you manage the uncorrelated nature of the asset class with the you know, ability to leverage your existing knowledge of certain cases or even you know, lead to a situation like YPF where you have 40% of the, roughly 40% of the book, which is one, one case potentially. Like, how do you, how do you manage the two? Well, on, on the YPF point, I think it's important to remember what we're measuring. So that, that's true as a paper accounting matter, but it's not true as a cash matter. You know, the, the YPF case has already been an enormously net profitable matter for us. We've invested, you know, less than $30 million in the case, and we've already received more than $200 million in cash proceeds that are ours to keep. So even if the YPF case were to stop today, nothing further was ever to come of it, it would remain one of our most successful investments ever. And so YPF, this is, this is actually back to your option point. So YPF right now is a free option for us as to future proceeds. The, the future of YPF is either zero or some number greater than zero, but there's no circumstance under which it's, it's a negative. And so that has accounting implications that I frankly don't worry all that much about because I don't pay all that much attention to the accounting. I run the business on a cash basis. And so I don't, you know, what the accountants do is what the accountants do. More, more broadly, though, you know, I think it goes back to some of the themes that we touched on earlier around the, the conservative management of the business. You know, we have deliberately not run this like a tech business. You know, we haven't said, gee, there's a huge opportunity that we see. So let's run at the wall as fast as we possibly can. Let's not worry about making profit today. You know, let's get the largest, you know, share of the market that we possibly can and hope that in the future that'll turn into profit. We haven't done that at all. As I said, we're, we're, we're employee owners of this business. You know, we, we use a conservative leverage structure. We insist that the business be profitable and we invest only moderately in growth instead of explosively. And I think those are the ways that you really mitigate 
the the unpredictability of the cash flows from a period to period basis. Some investors can look at Buffett and be like, oh, well, you know, it's it's driven by YPF, but that's just from an accounting perspective, but from a cash basis is completely different. That's exactly right. So it's this weird dynamic where actually the, the accounting of <laughs> that you have to follow, you know, could seem like Burford is actually driven by one asset, but really it's completely, completely the opposite. That's right. And it's, you know, look, it's, it's no different than private equity, right? You know, I'm, you know, I'm invested in lots of private equity funds. I get nice statements from the private equity firms telling me how much the value of my private equity investment has gone up because they're, they're marking those investments to market, but they haven't sold any of them yet. Uh, and so the, the fact that the statement is up is all very nice and good, but you know I'm actually waiting for the cash, and that's that's really how I approach managing. I've always thought it's funny where you know, Burford might get some stake for doing fair value accounting, but the private equity funds have been doing that for, for, for years. You know, and the LPs love it, right? <laughs> their, their assets getting marked up. Yeah. No, it's not. It's just you know, it's just how the world works. Like you know, imagine imagine a fund manager. You know, being told, you know, you don't you don't change the value of your mutual fund portfolio until you sell the stock. You know, that's just not how we go about reporting performance in this world. Um, so discussing IRR um, and, you know, one question that investors have, you know, really is how could IRR change if we do see an increase in supply of capital industry? How do you look at that over the next five years or so? Well, if you look at, at law generally, you've had an industry that has had a variety of different ways of dealing with the economics of litigation for a very long time. You know, this is particularly noticeable in the United States, where there have been contingency fee lawyers, lawyers that operate on a, on a no-fee-no-win basis, you know, since the beginning of time, basically. And those levels of contingency fees in the legal industry have not varied widely. And so as a result, you've got a world where I think you've had a, a benchmark, if you will, for, for risk-based asset pricing set not only by litigation finance firms like Burford, but also by an enormous volume of contingency fee litigation. And you just haven't seen that pricing erode. I think the reason for that fundamentally is that unlike lots of other financial assets, these are binary risk assets. We can and will lose money in some number of our investments. Theoretically, we could lose all of our capital in every investment. And you just don't see that kind of binary risk in most financial assets. And I think investors quite rightly will demand a premium for that level of risk associated with the assets. You know, if you could, if you have your choice of investing in Burford's assets or some, you know, distressed debt pool and the returns were exactly the same, you know, you'd probably choose to invest in the distressed debt pool because you've got some underlying asset value there. And so the result of that I think is that investors will continue to require a risk premium on their capital to invest in this asset class, which I think is appropriate. And that means that managers, you know, investors in this asset class, Burford and others, will need to continue to be able to produce returns that generate those, those risk premium. And as a result, I think there's a, there's a widespread understanding in this, in this industry that the, the better way to compete 
is by growing market size as opposed to competing for share on price. The market isn't static here. You know, and just to put some numbers around that, you know, there are 800, more than $800 billion a year spent globally on legal fees. There's more than that spent on judgments and, and awards. Now, that's not all addressable to legal finance, obviously. But, but you know, for Burford to have the largest portfolio by far in the industry at $4.5 billion shows you the, the, the gap between where adoption is today and where it might be in the future. And so, you know, entry and competition into this market tends to expand the market size as opposed to being involved in a tussle for share. And I think that's a state of affairs that will persist for, for quite some time. Do you see there being pricing pressure on the more commoditized, maybe smaller cases in the industry that could pressure IRRs? Yeah, look, the, the, I don't feel like the pricing pressure is, is particularly different. You know, it's a capital provision business. The the ultimate basis for, you know, pricing pressure is the client. Clients would always prefer to pay less for their capital. When I am a capital user, when I go into the market and borrow debt, you know, I'm all about trying to push for the lowest price that I possibly can get. And our clients have always done that. But I think you accept the reality of, of pricing for the risk. So if you're a client and you bring us a single high-risk case, we're going to charge considerably more for the capital than if you're a client and you bring us a 10-case portfolio that, that significantly mitigates the risk. And so the, the solution with clients is, again, not to you know, end up in a, in a downward spiraling approach to pricing, but it's instead to enlarge the market. Is that also... Why moving into the balance sheet side, you know, larger cases, more direct, almost protects the IRR in a way from that smaller end where private capital hedge fund money can come in and, and be just purely a source of capital. Well, I, I don't really see it as defensive. I see it as opportunistic. But I also don't think like it's a very dangerous thing to to try to commoditize these cases. And, and again, litigation finance is no different than any other specialty finance play, right? You, and you've seen lots of, lots of wreckage along the way from non-expert investors trying to dabble in things that they thought were attractive. You know, go look at life settlements, go look at, you know, all sorts of other examples where, you know, you had specialist players who, who made and continue to make good returns. And then you have people who came in to just do one deal because they thought they could master the master that specialist area. And it typically doesn't go that well. And I think litigation finance is no different than that. So, you know, if a hedge fund comes and does a small deal just on its own because it would like to do one in a side pocket, you know, that's that's taking an enormous amount of risk. The only way to invest in this industry is on a large, diversified basis. Those players simply will not last very long doing that. So let's say it's 2030 and we're looking back, you know, and, and IRRs have declined to mid double, you know, 15%. What, what do you think could be a reason for that? Well, I just don't think you're going to see that with respect to binary risk litigation. I just don't think that the I don't think that that's an appropriate level of pricing for the risk. It's not like again, we have 50 years of data of contingency fee price levels and you won't see lawyers 
taking on risk themselves for those kinds of returns. So that will be, I believe, the, the dumb money. What you might see, however, is, again, appropriate pricing for risk by market enlargement. So, and I have this conversation regularly with, with corporate clients and with law firms, and this is why we end up doing so many of our deals as larger multi-case portfolios. So, you know, I used to be, as I said earlier, I used to be the general counsel of Time Warner. I'm not sure that I would have found the pricing attractive to do a single case for litigation finance, but I had lots of cases. And so the solution that I offer to people when they don't like the pricing levels is not to reduce the price, it's to diversify the risk. So if, if Time Warner is willing to bear some of the tail risk across a 10-case portfolio, then I can get the same net returns on capital and offer them a lower headline number. And that's, I think, a point that is commonly not well understood. The reason that this capital is expensive is because of the binary risk element. If you can reduce the level of binary risk, then I can keep the same net returns on the portfolio while reducing the gross price. Well, then you pay this forward and you get the more securitized asset class. That's correct. And that, I think, is, is one of our long-term goals. Is there a reason why that couldn't happen? The principal reason revolves around information asymmetry. So, you know, the reality of most litigation is that it's confidential. Not necessarily that the fact of the litigation is confidential, but the underlying substance of the case is generally protected by legal privilege. And first of all, companies don't want the privileged facts out broadly known. And second, they run the risk of losing the, the protection for them if, in fact, that information comes out in the public domain. And so it is difficult today to give um, the market enough information about cases to enable them to make investment decisions. We have been building a secondary market, and you know Peterson is the most prominent example of our success in, in effectively securitizing our position in litigation, but we've done it in, in other cases as well. But the cases where it is working today are cases where there is enough information in the public domain that investors can make their own investing decisions without needing privileged material. So what I'd like to see going forward, and we're, we're still, I think, some distance away from having this happen, what I'd like to see going forward is a world in which we can build a sufficiently large and diversified portfolio with a sufficient track record that investors are going to buy on the, the track record instead of feeling the need to diligence the underlying cases. But as I said, I think we're, we're not quite there yet. Buffett could become the, yeah, effectively the Goldman of, of, of legal finance, right? Or Right. Exactly. So that's a that's a very realistic goal for us, you know, obviously in the confines of our of our own much smaller industry. But but yes, we have a strong ability to originate originate deal flow here and the ability to take that deal flow and make it accessible in a number of different forms. You know, we already do that today. We have, you know, there are a number of ways through Burford to get access to to exposure to litigation finance assets. You can buy the equity. You can buy the debt, the public debt. You can participate in any one of our a number of our our limited partner funds. And so I think that we'll we'll continue to try to expand the number of capital opportunities to participate. I do want to discuss the asset management side of the business in, in a moment, but 
Is there any correlation in the return profile of smaller versus larger cases? No, I don't think so. I think the correlation the correlation is much more to underlying litigation risk than to investment size. Because I've looked through the investment table and you know I've gone through the, the numbers you've provided, and one thing that is clear is is that the losses, the actual zeros that Burford has, typically are actually you know, sub one million dollar investments, and you know. And so is there any reason why that could be sustainable in that the, the, the zeros that you have are actually much, much lower investments going forward? Well, when you think about what's happening, it's, it's, not, it's not necessarily that you're, that you're seeing small cases there. So when you think about what litigation is, litigation is a process that tries to get adverse parties to understand better their the strengths and weaknesses of their own positions, right? So how do companies get into litigation? It's not out of the blue. They've had a prior course of dealing. Something has gone wrong. The relationship has fallen apart. Each of them, when they start litigation, believes that they are right, right? Nobody, nobody goes into a piece of litigation thinking that they're going to lose. So you, you're starting off with, with two parties, both of whom believe they're right, and one of them is wrong. One of them has misjudged the strength of their position. And so the reason that we don't take those cases and the next day send them to trial is because we prefer a process that lets people figure that out on their own. And so the reason that litigation goes through its stages, the reason that parties exchange their information under a, under a mandated process is so that they can recalibrate their own positions and revisit whether their original assessment was right. And so what happens in some number of cases is that as you go as you go into that process, you can fairly rapidly figure out that that in fact you were wrong. In fact, the other side has the stronger case, and it doesn't make any sense to prolong the litigation at that point. And that's a case that might well resolve rapidly and for very little money that's why you're seeing some of those you know small small dollar losses it's because the case doesn't get all anywhere close to all the way to the end of its life so that, that almost it's almost like great to risk reward for you then in terms of you can cut your losses very early in some cases that's right but then there are other cases where you know the the process does not cause people to change their assessments and those are the cases that end up going to trial because the parties are too far apart to resolve them on their own. And then a, then a decision maker is going to make the decision. And, and sometimes we'll be on the wrong side of that decision. And then for the larger cases, though, is there a situation where you can almost like add to your winners? or? Yes. And you saw an example of this last year. So we will not uncommonly watch investments where there's the opportunity to make more than one investment in an area. And so in, in 2020, for example, we had, you know, we had great success in a pool of related cases, but, but that didn't come all at once. We started investing in that pool some years earlier with just one case. You know, we, we watched that case. We liked what we saw. Our conviction level grew. And so we added to the position over the space of several years by bringing in other clients and doing other other related cases until we ended up building quite a significant position that, that ultimately was was successful. So Chris, just 
I want to discuss the asset management side and the balance sheet side of the business. How, how do you look at the trade-offs between growing or allocating capital via balance sheet or with third-party capital? Well, again, I think it goes back to the, the, one of the very earliest premises. You know, we're an employee, an employee-owned business in a number of ways. We think about, at the end of the day, we think about maximizing public equity value. So how do you do that? Well, you do that by allocating capital, you know, in the in the most sensible way that drives the highest level of, of returns and ROE, although you should look at that on a long-term and not a short-term basis. And so that's really how we approach those, those issues. But we also have an eye to, you know, wanting, wanting Burford's product offerings to be as broad as possible to meet the needs of our clients. And so we use a mixture of balance sheet and, and limited partner fund capital you know, across the spectrum of both client demand and investor demand. So just as the, just as the public company you know, has separate pools of stakeholders who buy the equity on the one hand and buy the debt on the other and are obviously looking for something very different, so too is the case in our, in our private funds. So we have private funds that are oriented at the the LP version of a debt investor, where we're providing a a low risk, short duration, and comparatively lower return product to those investors, which is also attractive to corporate clients and and law firms. And then we we basically think of this as a spectrum where we go all the way up to to higher returning, you know, more traditional litigation finance style investments. So we think about the, the funds business in that way as an important adjunct to what we do on the balance sheet and as a way of, of both having access to additional capital, but also having grant extensions in a way that is attractive to investors and attractive to clients. You know, it is, it is at the end of the day, given the returns that we make in traditional litigation finance in the core business, it is obviously more profitable for us to be making those investments on, on balance sheet with, with debt capital than it is to be making them in a 2 and 20 style fund. But there are lots of things to be done in the funds business that are, that are not just, you know, copycat 2 and 20 funds of the balance sheet. So it's about extending the product selection or range of both with the third party capital, but also trying to optimize the, the, the higher return stuff on your balance sheet effectively. Well, but it's also it's also dealing with what the the interests of all of the various capital provider constituencies are, you know. So we certainly continue to make capital available in in high returning items as well to our partners because, you know, we we value the both sides of the business. We value the public capital side and we value the private capital side. How do LPs view litigation within their own portfolio relative to other asset classes? I think I think I think they view it as a desirable, you know, uncorrelated investment. You know, I think it has a I think it has a place in their alternatives mixture. I think there's a widespread realization that it's an interesting asset class to to pursue. Are there any challenges given the the difference in the duration or the uncalled commitment nature versus more traditional orts? No, we manage that pretty carefully. I think the challenges for for private investors in particular are, you know, private LPs are accustomed to a high level of involvement in the investments that they make and a greater level of transparency than most public company investors have. And the, the challenge that this asset class presents 
is, you know, the more people know information about the investments, the more risk, the more stress you put on the legal privilege analysis. And so we take a view that it's, you know, we're not in a position to share client data about individual litigation investments with LPs. So LPs are not getting from us any any more information than public company investors are. And that is, you know, that is not the norm, obviously, in, in private fund investing. And so that causes some LPs to find it difficult to invest in this asset class. Is there any reason why we couldn't see Burford, you know, with 50, 100 billion AUM third party capital under management in, say, 10 years? Given that we're only 10 years old, my crystal ball doesn't extend anywhere, anywhere close to that part, anywhere close to that far. But, you know, what I, what I do think is we, we believe there's market opportunity here for us. And we've obviously been, been saying that publicly for a long time and we've been building the business to be able to take advantage of what we see as future market opportunity. Is there any challenge in, 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 in growing that third party asset AUM? I think the challenges are just the ones we've discussed. You know, on on the one hand, we are sensitive to the economics of of our of the returns that we're generating. So, you know, we make significantly more money on balance sheet than we do in a in a two and twenty fund for the identical high returning asset. And so we're we are fairly resistant to you know to fee or price pressure from LPs. Um, and LPs are increasingly fee focused, you know, to the point to the point from my perspective of, of you know, some level of irrationality where where the fee levels can drive the discussion somewhat more than the return levels. And so, you know, we're we're pretty disciplined just as we are in our use of leverage. We're pretty disciplined in terms of of how we're addressing fee fee levels from LPs. And, you know, if we don't find the overall offering attractive to equity shareholders, then, you know, then we won't pursue it. And that's, I think, a very, very significant distinction compared to lots of private fund managers. You know, I'm not putting the management fees in my pocket from the private funds that that we raise. Those management fees are going to public shareholders. Um, And so we view all of our private fund activity through the lens of equity value creation. We don't view it just as, you know, how much money can I take out of the fund business this year? Well, also the, you know, the asset management fees and income can even, if that covers the, the operating costs and the interest on the, on the balance sheet and you, all that, all the IRR on the, from the, from the balance sheet will just flow straight to the bottom line. <laughs> That's right. And the last couple of questions, Chris, I mean, firstly on, more broadly, how we should look at litigation funds. We know we've already discussed this briefly, but you used to use a cash nav, you know, I think years back now. I was diving back in like 2010, I think I found you use it. Some people say that you shouldn't use book value in this business because there's two, you know, there's, like I said, there's a book of options and there's two you know, binary risk. I mean, how, how do you look at the business? Well, you've been doing your you've been doing ancient history, my goodness. So first of all, I completely agree that you shouldn't value this business off book value. You know, this is a this is a high growth business with a with a track record of success generating high uncorrelated returns, and I think it's entirely inappropriate to use book value as a as a metric. To your cash nav point, I should just just put that in historical context. So when Burford started life, it started life as an externally managed fund. 
So the public vehicle was a fund and John Below and I owned the manager. And in, in 2010, the period you referred to, that was the structure. It changed in 2012 to be a unitary operating business. And so the, we, we dissolved the fund structure. The reason for the cash nav structure was just to make sure that we weren't going to be paid performance fees until we generated the actual cash. You know, that was that was the only purpose for cash nav. It was it was, uh, you know, and that was a time when, you know, back to the accounting point that we made earlier, you know, you don't want people just as I don't want my private equity managers to be being paid on on their paper gains. You know, you didn't want public shareholders shouldn't have wanted John and I to be paid on on paper gains. And so that's the reason we had that metric in place. But we haven't used it since we dissolved in, in 2012. So you wouldn't use book value then? How would you look at it? Well, personally, I think it's I think this business is appropriately looked at on a on a on a PG basis. I mean, the way I look at it is, yeah, I look at the I mean, there's a, a few interesting things that people have one way could a very simplistic way that we look at it is the two year lag deployments times an IRR minus the OPEX and the interest to get some rough argument of, you know, cash receipts. Is that how, is that a higher level way of looking at the kind of PNL? Well, look, you can certainly start, start there, but, but by doing that, a couple of things are happening, right? You're getting, you're getting both the growth and the existing portfolio, including Peterson for free then. Yeah. I mean, that that's, Peterson's just the free option that, <laughs> Yeah, on top of that, yeah, but argue, you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna talk valuation, arguably it shouldn't be a free option, and and certainly the growth shouldn't be a free option either. You know, the business has been growing rapidly. You know, I don't know any I don't know any businesses with these kinds of growth characteristics whose market value shouldn't include some allowance for future growth. Well, and and that's it. I think that so what what seems to happen is that people look at this as like a purely in a book value basis, which could really miss the, like you said, the value of the manager or the, your expertise, plus also the growth in the business. Yeah. You're, yes. I completely agree with that approach. Chris, last question. Why is, why, why is Burford seem to be the company that is always innovating or at the forefront of change in this industry? Well, I think it's, I think it's really just around, scale and depth of experience. You know, we've we've put together the leading team in the business. We've got a lot of smart people here. You know, we're covering the entire waterfront of the industry. And so we do, as I said earlier, every kind of case anywhere in the world with with all of our law firm and, and corporate partners. And that means we see an enormous amount of stuff. And that lets us sit back, talk to clients, think about, you know, where this industry is heading, how we can do a better job of serving client needs, and let us introduce products and, and services that clients want and, and value. Um, and you've seen that in our history. You know, you saw that when we went into the insurance business. You saw that when we went into the asset recovery business, when we launched diversified law firm portfolios. You know, all of those things were were first mover items by Burford, and they've all they've all not only transformed the industry, but they regularly are copied by by everybody else. 